0: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap.
1: Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. You... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. I've been doing this long enough now to know that when you talk to a director, you got to be a bit careful because chances are you're going to be directed. So James Cameron, who's the Canadian director behind like Avatar and Terminator 2, he's here to talk about Titanic, you know, one of the greatest films ever made. And let's just say we uh We got into it right away. James Cameron coming up. Plus, Mary Walsh is this icon of Canadian comedy, but she's especially an icon back home where I'm from in Newfoundland, where back in the 70s, she and her friends in this group called COGCO took on the Newfie joke and took back humor for the people of the province. She'll be here to tell you that story. Mary Walsh coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So yeah, back in 1997, if you were watching movies... Kind of if if you were just alive, it was hard to avoid Titanic, one of the biggest movies of all time, which, yeah, was about the ship going down in 1912. But when you watched it, it was about class. It was about young love. It was about heartbreak. It was about trying to find jewelry. Anyway, it won 11 Academy Awards, best picture. It was the highest grossing movie of all time until Avatar knocks it out in 2009. Both those films, by the way, directed by a Canadian James Cameron. So, James Cameron gets on Zoom to talk to us a little bit about Titanic. Stuff that I didn't know, that like Titanic was not supposed to work out, it was supposed to fail. Stuff I had heard, but I hadn't confirmed, like that the entire crew ate chowder laced with PCP while they were filming Titanic. So, we talk about all that. But as I was saying earlier, James Cameron, he's a director, he kind of directs the conversation. And right away, he picked up that I was Canadian. And we started there. Here's my conversation with James Cameron.
0: So you're a Canuck, eh?
1: I'm from Newfoundland, you know, the, the, uh, scene, the, scene, uh, of the okay. scene of the crime, man, you know?
0: I was taught to, to, you probably will have to bleep this, but I was taught how to speak Newfie. Go on, give it to me. All right. There's three words, three random words. Yeah. Uh, beef, oil, like from the ground, and hooked, like you've hooked a fish, but you have to say them in the right order. Oil beef hooked.
1: (laughs) I've heard that as whale oil beef hooked. Whale oil beef hooked.
0: (laughs) Whale oil beef hooked.
1: Thanks for being here. It's lovely to meet you.
0: Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. You know, we did a couple of our Titanic expeditions out of St. John's.
1: Oh, yeah. Did you spend much time there?
0: A fair bit, you know, at the beginning and at the end, because you got to set up the ship and get it all. We painted an entire Russian ship there, a 450-foot ship in, in St. John's from end to end. Just as you do.
1: Yeah. It's a very it's a very Canadian story in a lot of ways. I mean, it sinks sinks off the coast of of Newfoundland. They're they're buried in a in a Halifax uh, cemetery.
0: That's right. Um, In Nova Scotia. And the the Marconi station that they were communicating with uh, is right there on a hill above St. John's, which is a very important link in the whole the whole story.
1: Signal Hill. It's where we would go and make Uh, out when we were in high school.
0: I will have to take your word for that.
1: You will have to. What was <laughs> what was the germ of the idea in the first place? Like why the Titanic and then? Like what 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 was the
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it was never a big thing for me as a kid. I know a lot of especially especially boys are fascinated by the story growing up and all that. I was never fascinated by it particularly. What happened for me was when the wreck was discovered by Robert Ballard I saw a video on TV of the little robot, Jason Jr., that he used to go and explore in, in down in the grand staircase of the wreck. And I thought, that's space. That's like science fiction. That's cool stuff. And so I wrote about it and made a movie called The Abyss. Yeah. Fluid breathing system. We just got them. You use it when you go really deep. How deep? Deep. How deep? It's classified. Right? About remotely operated vehicles and all that kind of technology, in the process of which I met Robert Ballard. And he showed me around in his labs and the vehicles he was developing. And, you know, he was obviously famous for finding and exploring Titanic. And that then lodged in the back of my mind. So I make The Abyss, I make Terminator 2. And then after Terminator 2, I'm looking for something to do. And I started thinking about all that inner space technology and wanting to do a science fiction story. And then I thought, what about Titanic? So I started looking at the history, which I knew nothing about. And I, uh, I looked at um, Night to Remember. The final passenger list for the Titanic, sir. How many first class? 332, sir. Uh, total with crew?
1: 2,208, sir. More than
0: half the steerage. The famous black and white film from the early 60s, right? And uh, I thought, wow, this is an amazing story. It's really heart-wrenching. It's really, you know, uh, it's really tragic. And I thought, tragic love story. Romeo and Juliet. Put it against that background, yeah. and it just popped. It just popped into my head like that.
1: I tell you what was interesting was getting to re- getting ready for this interview was going back and reading all the press because I was born. So I was born in in eighty seven. So I was a kid when this film came out, right? So right, all, all right. I know of Titanic is it being a massive film and all of us lining up to buy the double VHS at stores. Yeah, right. like yeah, yeah, the yeah. stack. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, everyone had the, the stack. When I was yeah. reading um, the press th- about Titanic. Right before it came out, I learned something new, which was that – and this is not news to you, but I'll I'll say it to everybody anyway – uh, it was kind of already being talked about. There was talk that it wasn't going to work out. There was talk that it was going to be a flop. There was talk yeah. that it was going to be – it was already becoming the most expensive movie ever made. It was like being compared to the actual Titanic, which cost all this but, money. You know, and you know. wa-
0: and water world It's like anything with water, yeah. soggy, film sinks, film is doomed as the as the liner itself. You know, I mean I, I can remember all these headlines. They had us – You know, toes up in a ditch before they'd ever seen a foot of film, which was the most amazing thing to experience you could imagine to have everybody in the world kind of, you know, betting against you like you're the biggest chump in history. I, I kept a razor blade taped to the edge of the screen of my avid workstation when I was editing the film. And, it, and with a little note on it that said, use in case film sucks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so hold on. So are you feeling any of that stuff really, though? Like, are you feeling like, oh, th- this might not work out. This might be, the, this might be it for me.
0: Are you, are you kidding? I mean, I, we were convinced. And by we, I mean myself and the producer, John Landau. We were convinced that we were never going to work in Hollywood again. It was done. It, you know, I had a nice run. Didn't work out. Up until the first time we screened the movie for an audience, which was in Minneapolis in, I think, June of 97. So still a few months before we released the film. And at that moment, when I heard the audience response, and there was a woman sitting behind me that just literally narrated the whole movie from her perspective. Oh, you say you don't like him. You say you don't like him, but you're holding on to his hand now, aren't you? (laughs) You know, and uh, and I thought, wow, this movie really works. Maybe it's not a disaster, you know. Yeah. And then as we got closer to the to the release, the story kind of burned itself out when well, we moved out of summer to Christmas. the the All the negative stuff burned itself out. And then people just were left with nothing. But all right, fine. Let, let's look at this thing. Yeah. Let's look at this three hour turd. Yeah. You know, and then they watched it and they went, oh, my fucking God. Yeah. It's not what we said. And so then they didn't have that other story. They had a new story. A new story was, it's pretty good. But we still thought we probably wouldn't work again because we thought we had burned through $200 million on a a flop, a good flop. At least now we knew it was a good flop. Then it came out right before Christmas. And it went up. It didn't go down. You know, movies go down 40, 50, 60% on their second weekend. It's just a thing. It's like a law of gravity. We didn't go down. We went up. Yeah, Movies don't go up. You know, that's like, it's like an unwritten law.
1: When, when did you know, like, was there a moment you knew that not this wasn't just going to do okay, you were going to be okay, you were going to be able to work again, this was maybe going to recoup? But, <laughs> but was, there, was there a moment where you were like, oh my God, actually, this might become the highest grossing film of all time, like that kind of thing?
0: It was a series, a cascading series of kind of revelations to all of us. So there were two studios involved, Paramount, Paramount and Fox yeah. and, you know, ourselves at Lightstorm. And just week after week, it got weirder and weirder and weirder, you know, until we just kind of woke up one morning at the, toward the end of January and said, guys, you understand we're on a trajectory to be the highest grossing film ever. Unless something really weird happens, you know really disruptive happens in the next month and everybody just stopped and 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 they kind of realized what was happening um, but we it was almost impossible to believe up until that moment and then it played out that's exactly what happened so it was a pretty crazy time to go from the depths of despair yeah. to the height of triumph and the Oscar goes to Titanic.
1: I wanted to ask you something that it's been in the news recently, but like I always knew it as East coast lore, like coming from Newfoundland. I had heard this urban legend growing up and I've heard it in the news recently. I wanted to ask you about it, which is the story that like while you were filming in Dartmouth and Nova Scotia, the chowder got laced with PCP. This is true.
0: This is a hundred percent true story. Let me tell you, you haven't lived until you've been high on PCP (laughs) which, by the way, I do not recommend to anyone, even stoners, <laughs> um, in a, in, at, at there was a little tiny hospital in, I think it was uh, Dartmouth, um, with like 85 crew members. Yeah. You know, so the hospital, I mean, there was an emergency room with no one in it, and like a nurse, and 85 crew members walk in. You know, we don't know. We think we've had shellfish poisoning, like n- neural shellfish poisoning that kills you. Like, you know, and and uh, oh. we walk in, we don't know what's going on. And basically, somebody had taken a pound of PCP and dumped it into the chowder. Why? And we have a pretty strong suspicion who it was, uh, although it was never proven. Um, we believe the story is that it was somebody who had a beef with the caterers, because the first thing we did was fire the caterers. Right, when we recovered, you know the next day um, and uh you know sure enough we had some we had some leads on that, of course, the operant theory was that I was such a psychomaniac that they were trying to get back at me but but I reject that theory out of hand for obvious reasons.
1: I also, in doing research for, I think it's it's easy to look at Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet as a slam dunk now because I mean they are still like the biggest stars in the entire world. It wasn't until I did the research for this interview that I realized that it was actually kind of risky basing the film this massive, yeah. like yeah. huge budget film on them because you were kind of doing it based on the on your reputation, of the special effects because they weren't right. they weren't who they are now.
0: No, they, well, I don't think they sold tickets then. Lee, Leonardo got, after we were making the film, in the middle of the film, I remember Romeo and Juliet came out. We're about halfway through the shoot. Yeah. It was a hit. And all of a sudden Leo was was bankable at some, at some level, the Baz Luhrmann film, right? Uh, but when we cast him, he wasn't. He'd only done, you know, Gilbert Grape and Basketball Diaries and stuff like that that was, you know, he was like the this, this, this skinny, afflicted kid. Seriously. I mean, he, he you can, in fact, when, when I, Leo didn't want to read, but when I finally convinced him to read, I saw something amazing and I knew he could play Jack. And I called up the studio and I said, i found Jack. And I was talking to the head of the studio at the, at the time, Fox. And, um, and, uh, I said, I said, Leonardo DiCaprio. And he said, what? Based on what? I said, well, you haven't seen it. And he said, well, did you tape the audition? I said, no, he, he wouldn't let me. Uh, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. So they had to make a deal with Leo based based on my say so that I had seen something. Who
1: did they want? You
0: know I mean? Like a like a UFO sighting, you know, or a unicorn sighting. Who did they want? Anybody but Leo.
1: Kate too. I mean, Kate wasn't well known. Like, I, no, Kate.
0: Kate didn't sell tickets. Uh, she'd done a number of kind of period pieces, and and you know she was she was well respected as an, a uh, you know a, a young up and comer. She was nineteen. She wasn't. Um, first of all, nobody at nineteen or twenty is really a movie star. They only have the potential to be, but they, they they're on a career trajectory that's that's plottable. You know, like uh, Timothée Chalamet. Now, yeah. you know, it's like he's. You you could see him on a trajectory toward toward massive stardom. Yeah. Leo wasn't on that trajectory yet at yeah. that point.
1: I love know? I love that I can tell you're Canadian because you get his name right in French. By the way,
0: <laughs> everyone calls him <laughs>
1: Timothy Chalamet, except for the Canadians who know his name is Timothy Chalamet. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Exactly.
1: Can you tell me the story I heard about Kate one time and I, I I really loved it and I can relate to it again as an east coaster because it, the sun never shines and it's always foggy where I'm from. This the story like the very famous story where they're at the the very famous scene where they're at the bow of the boat and they and they and they kiss and so the sun the sun is setting in the background. Like that that was that was almost impossible to get, right?
0: We tried for 10 days to get that shot. And what we did was, because we were down in Baja, and the sun would just kind of go, you know, a bald blue sky, and the sun would go to the horizon and wink out. That was pretty much it. There was no beautiful sunset. Um, and uh, so the idea was we scheduled it for the first day of day exteriors. And if it we looked like we were going to have a good sunset, we'd all move to the bow. First day goes by, second, third, get to day 10. We're on, we're on our second to last day of day exteriors. And it's kind of cloudy. And I say to the DP, I think we're going to get a sunset. And he looks through his loop and goes, nope, and the and the uh, the gaffer looks through his loop, no, nope, we're not gonna get a sunset. And I'm like, guys, just be ready, just in case. And part part of that is the desperation of like we're out of time. And sure enough, that, that the sun started to come down below those clouds, and you got that really kind of moody. Kind of mystical red and orange, with the big glowering clouds up ahead. So it wasn't a beautiful kind of Montana or Wyoming sunset. It was a, it was a moodier one. But there was something incredibly beautiful about it. And we ran like hell to the bow of the ship, and we set it up really quickly. And we had no time. We had ten minutes maybe at the most. And Kate had to run and switch dresses really quickly. And she comes huffing in and climbs up the ladder to the to the bow set. And Leon, Leon, uh, Leonardo's there, and she looks at the sunset. And she looks over at me in the camera crane and she screams at the top of her lungs, shoot, (laughs) (laughs) which normally is my job. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay, roll, 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 like she said.
1: I'm flying, Jack.
0: And we got two takes and one's out of focus, Uh, completely. Because We didn't never had time to rehearse and the light level had dropped way down. And the other one actually in the movie is out of focus for the first three or four seconds and pops into focus. Oh if you
1: Wow because because a like
0: cheesy way of getting people to go watch the film again. You can see it. Out of
1: focus. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean I was, it was fun to talk to you at the beginning a little bit about this being a Canadian film. I mean of course you you're a Canadian filmmaker born in Kappas casing, I think, and then raised in Chippewa.
0: Uh, hey, right, so pretty far north, yeah, way up in northern Ontario, you know, just not far from the Arctic Circle. Capuscasing, and and then uh, grew up in Chippewa, which is now part of Niagara Falls, way down in the peninsula. Right, so yeah, yeah, Canadian, born and bred. Moved to Los Angeles when I was seventeen. Anything
1: now? I don't know if you'll have an answer for this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Anything Canadian about you as a filmmaker?
0: Well, look, I think you've got a sensibility. I think you've got a value system, you know, as a Canadian, which um, it's almost impossible to quantify, but I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't grown up in that setting, which was blue collar. So I like blue collar heroes. You know, I mean, my dad was an engineer, but it was basically kind of a blue collar neighborhood. It was the idea that I could go to Hollywood and become a filmmaker let alone at you know any any level since then, but just to actually make a movie would have been so unfathomable to me or anyone in that milieu. So I think ultimately there's always that sort of pinch me sense that somebody's going to come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, get out of here, you're not supposed to be here." You know, But I think a humility before the before the craft and yeah. before the task and having that work ethic does pay off, you know. Um, i can 't i don 't know how much of that is genetically innate how much of that is upbringing nature versus nurture you know it's it 's a hard thing to parse out but Canadians do punch above their weight generally yeah. speaking in in the world much like New Zealanders you know I live now in in New Zealand and I see a lot of similarities in the value system and and uh, just how how they look at life in both places
1: it's funny you mentioned like hardworking determination I when I think about you I mean you get talked a lot about in terms of uh, of ambition like someone who was willing to like you know get the studio to build a brand new set for you know Titanic right. at a considerable expense, you know famously like wait for the technology to be invented so you can make the new avatar movie or invent it yourself to make the new the new avatar movie but I think yeah. they, I think they missed something there like I I, I don't think it's just ambition. I think it's patience and yeah. ambition. Like you yeah. have to be patient and ambitious.
0: Well, I think it's good to be to have lofty goals for one thing. I think that I've always tried to I've always said to everybody, look, I'm going to set I'm going to set a goal here and we're going to fail. We won't achieve that goal, but we're going to fail to a level that's above everybody else's goals. And I've always approached life that way. Say that again. Say mindset. that again. I'm going to set a goal that's so ludicrously high that in trying to achieve it and failing, we will fail above everybody else's goals.
1: Oh, that's lovely.
0: Well, that's just how I do things, right? But it's not ambition for its own sake. We didn't build a studio in Baja because we wanted to build a studio in Baja and, hey, look at us. It was problem solving. It's how do we solve a problem where we need to build these huge sets we need access to a labor pool. We need access to thousands of extras, and so on. To try to do it in Los Angeles would have cost twice as much. So we did it in Baja. Yeah. So it's problem solving.
1: Yeah. But it's patience too. I mean, that's it to wait the for technology patience. to be so made. It's, you know, to, to it's wait the for the long
0: game. Yeah, it's the long game, right? So, so I wrote uh, an eighty-page treatment for for Avatar, the first film. And I took it to my guys at Digital Domain because I had founded a, 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 an all digital uh, VFX company and I wanted to, to push them to the next level. Uh, and they said, this isn't the next level. This is three levels. And I said, fine. I stuck it in a drawer and I waited, you know, and I waited. And when I saw Peter Jackson's second Lord of the Rings film and I saw some of the scenes with Gollum, I thought, I think we're on the cusp of being able to do Avatar. So I got it back out and I read it. Okay, pretty good story. Let's do it. First
2: flight seals the bond. You cannot wait.
0: Think. Fly. Fly.
1: (laughs) Just one more question before we go, and they're going to wrap me anyway, so I'm going to ask it anyway, though. Are you ever unsure of yourself?
0: Always. Always. Uncertainty makes you stronger, right? Because uncertainty... And it's not self-doubt because I know what I can do, but uncertainty about the decisions that I'm about to make or the decisions that I've already made that I now have to live up to, I think it makes you better, you know, because then what I do is I'll obsessively loop on what can go wrong, right? What are we not seeing? How can I parallel process to get to a goal? When I hit an obstacle, what's my other path around to get to that goal? What are the possible obstacles? And I've found that that kind of mental paradigm works beautifully for production where you can never foresee everything. It also works beautifully for deep ocean expedition projects because you can never foresee everything. Oh, and by the way, the ocean didn't read the script <laughs> and, the, and the creatures don't observe their call time, you know? So anyway, it, it I think it creates a kind of an agility and a fluidity and a, and a, and a rigor and discipline about thinking through problems ahead of time so that you, you're you not thwarted, so that you're not stopped cold in your tracks. And I've found that it works very well in engineering projects, expedition projects, and and movie projects.
1: Well, listen, I, I'm getting the rap uh, three times now, but I, I, it's, it's it, I just want to tell you before you go, like – Titanic is a generational movie, kind of for my generation, and I just want to thank yeah. you, thank you for it. Like, you know, it's
0: it's. Thank you. It's, they thank you thank for
1: you. the for the kind of gift
0: of it. I appreciate that very much, and this has actually been a great talk. You're, you're getting me to think about a lot of things I didn't think I was going to have to be thinking about today.
1: I'm just trying to earn a couple of bucks up here. You know what the exchange rate is like. <laughs> hey, <know>? me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: James,
1: uh, James, lovely to meet you.
0: <laughs> okay, good talking to you. Thank Let's you. Let's so do much. it again.
1: After the interview, I think I found myself doing like. I think I was doing like a jog around the studio because like I had just like run or or exercised a little bit. Because talking to James Cameron, as you can tell, it's kind of like doing a a sprint and also because I don't do a lot of sprints. Titanic celebrates 25 years with a new remastered cut of the film in 4K, 3D and in IMAX. It's back in select theaters starting today.
0: One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude, and McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life and Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app,
2: What am I going to say to Stephen Harper after I've kissed him and got an orange lipstick all over his face, you know, or anyone, not just Stephen Harper. So you would just get out, so of, there. Just, get out of there as fast I just as possible. So Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm such a coward, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's something I've always been curious about. Like, when you embarrass politicians on TV, like that's Mary Walsh talking about embarrassing the former prime minister of Canada. Stephen Harper on This Hour is 22 Minutes, the satirical news show. What do you do when the camera turns off? What do you do when it's time to coil cable and they're just standing there in front of you? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Uh, I want to give you some context on what you're about to hear. So I'm from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. I've lived in Toronto for about a decade. But I'm very, like, of my my home province. It's also important to mention that I'm part of the island portion of the province, kind of an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. And we didn't join Canada until 1949. The reason it's important to say that is because you're going to hear from Mary Walsh right now. And Mary Walsh is certainly an iconic like Canadian comedian. She's been on TV in Canada for like decades and decades and decades, on COGCO, and This Hour is 22 Minutes. And now she has a new show called The Mrs. Downstairs and a new movie called Dad in the Fridge Box, which is about the kind of parent that doesn't throw anything out. But – Mary Walsh was among the first generation of artists from Newfoundland to grow up as Canadians. Her parents were born in a country called Newfoundland. Mary was born in the same place, probably the same hospital, and she was born in a country called Canada. So at one point in this conversation, Mary talks about that about coming up to Ontario and being told Newfie jokes. Newfie jokes were kind of like jokes at Newfoundlanders' expanse about how, you know, dumb or or poor Newfoundlanders were and how she became part of a comedy troupe that tried to stand up for us. So lots to talk about in a conversation with a person to me who is a, a true icon. Here's my conversation with Mary Walsh. How are you?
2: Oh, good, Tom. Really good to join you. How are you?
1: I'm lovely. House. I'm. I'm homesick. How's St. John's?
2: Oh well, St. John's is sunny and beautiful today. I have to say it's quite glorious. But we did have what we called a storm, so there were no storm chips or anything left in the shops and the and the shelves were bare. But it actually was just what we used to call it snowed.
1: Right, right. Still, the if it was in Toronto, they'd call in the army for it, Mary
2: that's right they call in the army but we didn't and everything was grand and there wasn't high winds or anything so that you know what i mean there was none of that
1: i loved the short film i loved the film
2: oh good i love uh, me too i do and i always loved agnes's poem dad in the fridge box because like you were saying You said that he found a use for the fridge box, but he found a use only for the fridge box. He really had no interest in the fridge whatsoever. (laughs) Right. And and really didn't want it, you know, in messing up the house. Really, he didn't want anything, anything new at all. And so uh, Agnes's mother was delighted when she saw him take a real interest in the box. Right. But then he took the box and went off into the parlor and put down a mat and put his chair there, and that's where he sat until the day he died, I guess. And and Agnes always said nobody in Placentia ever said anything except a dandy box bill.
1: Because <laughs> because he would for people who haven't seen the film, and it's it's a ten minute long film. I recommend that you go see it on Jim. But and this is a true this is a true story, right about Agnes Agnes's father.
2: Yes, he, yes. Yeah. He
1: would he he they got the fridge he didn't want it. He takes the box, like you said, moves it out into the parlor, puts his chair in it and watches TV in the box to keep the breeze off of him. (laughs)
2: That's right, because he was always cold. He was a man who used to put his tools in the oven so that in the morning when he'd have to use them, they wouldn't be cold to the touch, right? And so he always felt the cold. I, I imagine he was a very thin man. I never met Agnes' dad, but I imagine he was a very thin man and felt the cold uh, particularly hard, you know? So that box kept the, kept the, uh, the draft off him all that time, right?
1: Yeah, my, my dad was like that. He'd be in watching TV with the, with the winter coat on inside, froze to death <laughs> all the time you know
2: yeah i find uh well i went my my uh internal temperature went up on you know um on on, on a nuclear bus there during uh, the change and then it must have <laughs> stayed up there so long that it broke my whole heating system because now i'm frozen all the time you uh, know yeah. see i got this little red uh, shawl on, just like an old lady, you know. and uh, But yeah, I find the cold myself, so I'm thinking about getting a fridge box for myself and just putting it out.
1: That'd be good for your Zoom calls. Let me, let me play a clip from your film. Take a listen to this. Okay. Kitty.
2: Don't start, Bill. It's a refrigerator.
1: Is it
0: now? A refrigerator. Not our useless gadget to take up space. Janie, be a dear now.
1: Go in the back porch and grab a couple of those old throw mats. See if we can't get this useless gadget into the house.
2: Everyone's got one bill.
1: Do they now? Okay, so that's Deidre gillard Rowling's, and Daryl Hopkins in the short film Dad in the Fridge Box. So uh, tell me a little bit about what's going on in that clip right there.
2: Oh, that's the day that she's waiting for the fridge to come. And he doesn't like anything. You know what I mean? He doesn't like anything new coming into the house. And uh, and so she's very nervous about the fridge coming and how he's going to react. So you can imagine how delighted she was when he takes such time with the fridge. You know, he won't let her tear open the box. He He's carefully, carefully cutting the box away. And and so she thinks that he's delighted with the fridge, but he has no interest in the fridge whatsoever and take takes off for the parlor
1: with the box. The film's been uh, around to a whole bunch of festivals. It was shortlisted for The Rose Door in Europe. It won Best Super Short Film at the New York City Independent Film Festival. You know, it's a funny thing because to me, it's a very Newfoundland story. You know, it's a very, very, you know, the, the, the old crooked Newfoundlander who doesn't want something new or the old crooked Newfoundlander who does something weird with something that he has and everyone kind of ignores it. But is there something sort of universal about that? that that you think is is landing in in countries other than Canada?
2: Oh, well, old and crooked right away, of course, you know, and I speak from experience. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I think that that, uh, that thing that happens to us as we age, like our skin gets less... Pliable, and we, we we get less ready to change, you know, and many times, I mean, people like Daryl's character or Agnes's dad, they were quite right about things because you know, making do as all of our grandparents and our parents had to, like save every piece of twine, you know, I mean, it just drive me crazy when I was young, the way Aunt May would save everything. And then I just wanted to throw everything away. And that has proven to not be such a great way to live, you know, uh, just toss everything on the garbage heap really is costing us an enormous, uh, you know, our, our disposable society, uh, you know, so Daryl in them. And so I think that people see that too. That uh, that older notion of, of of treating each thing with respect and reusing it and recycling it and all that is all very modern too, isn't it? And and, and that uh, it's too bad we didn't uh, stick with uh Daryl and and Agnes's dad's notion of what we should do, right?
1: Yeah, we wouldn't be in such hard shape as we are. Yeah. Uh, has Agnes seen the film?
2: Agnes has seen the film. Yeah, she loves it. And uh, she cried, of course, uh, because uh, Daryl and Dee Dee really reminded her of her mom and dad, right? So that was good. I I love that, uh, you know, um, I usually do my own work and... I notice, I mean, not that anybody's interested in this except me, but I notice that when I do someone else's work, like uh, like Agnes's, like I take a, an original piece by Agnes and I work on that. Yeah, that I can be much more heartfelt and much more open to emotion. Whereas when I do my own work, I got a bit of a hard edge. You know what I mean? Like I, uh, yeah. And so I, I'm. It's interesting. It's it's interesting that somebody else's experience. You know. Uh, Uh, kind of breaks me open a little more like, um, yeah, I've uh, because I spent a lifetime just doing my own sketches and my own work and, you know, yeah, not really doing that much of anybody else's stuff. Right. So with Agnes's piece and with Dave Sullivan's uh, experiences, uh, I've uh, you know, it's it's really uh, it's really been interesting. Yeah,
1: let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Dave Sullivan's thing. So my, my yeah. guest is the multi-Gemini award-winning uh, member of the Order of Canada, the Newfoundland comedy icon Mary Walsh. Her short film, Dad in the Fridge Box, is out now on Jam. So this, um, this show with the comedian Dave Sullivan is called The Misses Downstairs. And my understanding of it, it, it's something that actually happened to Dave in real life, right?
2: Well, Dave thought, I'll do something that I've always wanted to do. I'll rent a house or buy a house right on the ocean. Right. Where I've wanted to be, you know, and because of lockdown and everything, he would get a chance to be at just him and the ocean, you know, the the the, the profound meeting with nature. And uh, so he rented a house and he moved out there in the night and in the morning and he gets up quite early because he goes to the gym like five o'clock in the morning. Uh, he went out on the thing to look at the magnificent North Atlantic and a voice said, you're up early. And he looked down, and there was a lady with a cigarette in her mouth looking up at him, and uh, and he said, "Yes, yes, I am. Uh, do you live next door?" "No, boy, I lives down in the basement. I've been down here eight years." And he had rented a house with someone else already in it, and there was no, there was never a time that the missus wasn't waiting with a cigarette in her face to say five o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock, and my God, you work some hard. Jesus, are you've been gone since six o'clock this morning. And who was like, and Dave had no interest in having a relationship with another human being at that point. And of course, the missus what like um, you know, um uh, Rick Hillier always says, Newfoundlanders, we're not that friendly. We're just really nosy. Uh, but she really she really wasn't. I, I met her after. She's nothing like my character. She's a sweet, sweet woman. And uh, and in, indeed, they ended up getting quite close right in the end. But, you know, like she said, priceless things like, uh, what did you do at the gym? What are you on the treadmill, are ya? And he'd go, uh, no, I, I, I lift weight. weights. Weights, they heavy.
1: <laughs> we have we have a clip from the show. So this is this is right as Dave Dave's character moves moves in, uh, and the the Mrs downstairs played by Mary played by Mary, uh, she's she she introduces herself and, and says this. Take a listen.
2: Are you light on your feet? What? Are you light on your feet? Because the last crowd. They were like a herd of Jesus moose up there.
1: I mean, I, I guess I'm light on my feet. I'm...
2: You're a big young fella, but sometimes the bigger they are, you know, the lighter they minces around on their feet. What? Good luck with it all, anyway.
1: They'll rent the one. I find sometimes the lighter they are, the, <laughs> the more they <laughs> minces around on their feet.
2: Yeah, yeah. The heavier they are, right? Oh, the, heavy, the heavier uh, yeah, they heavier yeah, they are, the, the lighter yeah. they minces around,
1: around on their feet. Their
2: feet. And then Dave and I took the missus out for lunch at the Rooms, which is a beautiful place. We went to lunch there, and there's a, an exquisite view of the harbour and of all St. John's. You
1: took the the actual Elsie, the actual person. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we
2: took. And and uh, and when we were leaving, she said, and it made me cry again. Of course, I'm always crying. I think when you get a bit older, that's it. Uh, you're either laughing or crying. Uh, she said that it was the best day she ever had other than the day she had both her youngsters. So we were pretty good. really pretty, touched pretty good by company. That. Who yeah, did you yeah. have
1: to channel? Cause, cause like you said, she's very sweet. She's not quite like that. No. Who did you have to channel to, to make this character happen for you?
2: I channel my mother constantly uh, and so she's much more like my mother, like the smart remark and the mean remark and the, you know, like uh, making fun and sarcastic and stuff. And so this, the third season, we're just writing the third season now. And I, but, you know, I said to Dave, I'm trying to be different in my life, but I said to Dave, I have so much fun because sometimes I just improvise a whole string of mean remarks, of the most unkind remarks, of the most horrible remarks to him. And at the end of the day, I feel so light and and, and, and bouncy. And Dave doesn't see, he says he doesn't mind because it's not to him. It's to John, a character. And you know what I mean? And it has nothing to do with Dave, really. It has to do with the character. It was like when I used to do uh, That Show Sucks with uh, Toomey, Greg Toomey. I used to kick him quite hard because that was based on my mother and my brother, Frank.
1: That Show Sucked with your hosts, TV critics Mom and Eddie Reardon. Give
2: me that clicker box. Oh, just give it for me, I say. Shut up! I'm watching South Pacific. This yes. is hard to force. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Look how we lost South pathetic. more like a, a torn ah, ass. South God, a musical on the TV. What were they thinking? That show sucks. Now, give me that. No. Gee, leave, leave, me there, leave, there, leave it there. And so sometimes I would kick him too hard and he would complain. So then I would stop kicking him so hard. But then he'd go, nah, it's no good. It's no good now if you don't. If you don't kick me really hard. So I used to have to kick him really hard all the time. I,
1: I mean, I was, I was going to ask you about that because as long as I've, I've been aware of your work, which is as a Newfoundlander since birth, you're, yeah. you're, 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 you come out and you're, 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 you watch COGCO and you watch 22 minutes right off the bat. Um, you, you have played that crooked Misses, So that's your mom a little bit.
2: In a way, yes, it is my mother. But, you know, it occurred to me very early on, and it has proven to be true, that as a young woman, and I'm not blaming society for this, but I was so caught up in did I look attractive? Would anyone find me attractive? You know, those things that as a young woman, like, am is my hair all right? Am I acceptable in any way? And it occurred to me early on that if you were just an old bat, all those things could disappear and you could just be like yourself right you could just be uh funny or a person or you could say what you liked you wouldn't have to worry what is my saying this you know like i remember when i first was married to my husband and he came to the show and and i was playing um, uh, that mrs on the on the on the couch with greg and and I was playing Dakey Dunn the man and I didn't mind so much playing Dakey Dunn but I really felt really uncomfortable having Don see me as you know with the no the quite unattractive I guess you could say yeah and uh yeah so it, it's like um you know it was like a way to break through uh that um that oh uh, incredibly oppressive thing that you is put over you or you put over yourself as a young woman you know
1: and by allowing yourself to be this crooked uh Jan arden used to say like an old crone like this 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 crooked yes. You, you were able to eliminate all those expectations put on you and find something really funny in it.
2: I could find freedom within that, right? Which I could never find. Like the first ambush I did was as Molly Maguire uh, with my hair all perfect and with a beautiful suit on. And I ambushed uh, Gwyn Dyer. And uh, I I was just completely frozen. He said something kind of mean to me. And I totally froze. Whereas when I got that... Uh, that uh, felt suit on and the, all the makeup as Marg and stuff with the plastic sword. It just gave me a freedom that I didn't have, you know, when I was trying to look a certain way that, you know, was more acceptable to everyone. Mr. Prime Minister, oh my God, we never thought we'd hear you say you were going to retire. At least that's what we think we heard you say. Because to be honest, it's hard to understand what the name of God you've been talking about here lately in both official languages.
1: So it was easier for you to take on Jean Chrétien and take on these these people in the seats of power as Mar Delahunty's Mar Princess Warrior because, because, Because you allowed yourself to be that kind of person.
2: Yes, like when I used to ambush people, like after you know the scrums, right? And everybody was there. Everybody was there in their Burberry, you know. All the CBC and and CTV people were there in their Burberry trench coats and their you know fabulous. And the, and everybody was done. And I'd be there in that uh, felt uh, suit with the gold glue and the plastic sword. And I would feel a deep, deep, deep amount of shame. Uh, but my shame was so much that I would finally go well what odds i'm already i'm already down here like how much further can i go i might as well go for it you know
1: can i can i ask you about what happened i've always wanted to know after the camera cuts and you're just there with the prime minister or the politician and the the the, the moment is ended and you got i don't know people have to coil cable or you got to put your coat back on what are those what are those moments like
2: I get out of there really fast uh because you know I don't know what to say. You know, what am I going to say to uh, uh you know um to Stephen Harper after I've kissed him and got an orange uh lipstick all over his face. You know, uh, what is there to say after that, you know, or anyone, not just Stephen Harper. So you would just get out, so out, of, there. You just, get out of there as I fast just as possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> like I'm I'm such a coward, really. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, I mean, so many of the characters we're talking about today are are characters that people would have known uh, about from this hour's 22 minutes. It is the 30th anniversary of this hour's 22 minutes this year. Could you ever have imagined when you started this thing?
2: no and i remember rick mercer did a little we got a national tv series dance like when we when we got it and i remember thinking oh no we got a national tv series what are we going to do now and uh, and of course it was on everyone quite daunting because every monday you'd start off with nothing and we had no writers we only had one wig a blonde wig that was it and uh, and there was just the four of us and and the fabulous crew of course and uh, but we had no writers or anything like that so every monday there'd be nothing and by friday you'd be doing a live show So it didn't seem possible that it was going to carry on, but it did.
1: What what do you make a year 30? What do you you make that this thing's been around for 30 years?
2: I know. What what do you make of it? I mean, I don't know what to make of it. It's just um, I'm really thrilled. And and the way that it can continue on and then Mark's doing that fabulous son of a critch and everything, it just seems like a – and everyone you meet in Canada now – Seems to have either gone through, you know, gone through the writing room there, you know. So it's been a great generator of talent and, 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 you know, rising up people and things. Uh, it's like Degrassi. Once upon a time, you couldn't meet anybody who hadn't worked on Degrassi. And now it's hard to meet comedy writers who haven't worked on uh, this hour, right?
1: Let me, let me, CBC, overthink this just for a second. Okay. When when COGCO starts, which is, so for, let me just give a little bit of a, 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 a background here for people who might know, Mary's part of this incredibly influential, like the Monty Python of Atlantic Canada, uh, COGCO.
2: Now, are you a dirty person, Mr. Mac
1: Well, Mrs. Budgel, I've been living with my mother for 20 years in Brig Bay.
2: Is she dirty? Well, she's dead, actually. Well, now, Mr. Macbeth, well, I don't care if she's alive or dead. I don't want to interfere. All I know is I keep this place spotless. I go through the house twice a week with Javix and Dettol, and I boil the mattresses once a week and the pillows. last two tenants died of filth. Pay no attention to Miss Caslow. Yeah. She's a very bitter woman.
1: And that COGCO ends up having being a TV show, and it ends up kind of spawning this hour's 22 minutes and, and so many other things. In fact, some COGCO alumni are in The Mrs. Downstairs. Andy Jones is in it. Um, but up until then... Newfoundlanders were really cruelly mocked. I mean, I think it was in 1965, the number one best-selling uh, nonfiction book in Canada was a book of Newfie jokes, and there were Newfie jokes everywhere. And then Cogco really reclaims the spotlight um, and reclaims humor. I mean, the idea of Cogco itself being after the cod fishery is, is in itself a joke. It must be amazing to see, Mary— how far things have come for Newfoundlanders in comedy because I don't really get any of that anymore. You know, I don't really get it anymore.
2: I know. Isn't that fabulous? But when we went to Toronto, I went up to go to Ryerson, which is not called Ryerson anymore. And uh, people would fall down, actually fall down laughing just because you said you were from Newfoundland. But it was just unbelievable. And we thought we could change that. And I remember we used to be so devastated because we used to get... We used to get reviews that said uh, "caught on a stick, a dory load of fishy fun." <laughs> 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 or, you know, uh, and and um, and we were so bitter about that, right? <laughs> and and we met, uh, you know, we met uh, the medium is the message. We met him uh, Marshall, the, Marshall right? McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan. And the first thing Marshall McLuhan did was tell us a newfie joke, like one of those newfie jokes about stupid newfies. It was like. Oh, my
1: God. Marcia McLuhan, really? Marcia
2: McLuhan. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really quite, it was hard at that time. And and things have changed. And I don't think there's so many, you know, I'm so happy to have been a small part of it, that we were a small part of it. But there was a change, you know, and what we have in Newfoundland that other people don't have in the country, other provinces, is that we were a country. We were our own country for a long time. And so we had to be everything for each other, right? And so um, I think that that makes a difference.
1: I think, and maybe this is a good way to close, I think that the work that, uh, and I, I'll make you feel uncomfortable, the work that you and Greg and Tommy and Andy and Kathy and then Rick and, and, and Greg Toomey, I mean, the work that all you guys did uh, served all of us in as Newfoundlanders in the arts now and gave us gave us a fighting shot. So So thanks for that, bye.
2: Oh, Tom, thank you for having me. And we listen to you all the time.
1: I, I, I love the short film and I love The Mrs. Downstairs, mainly because it reminds me of all of my grandmother's neighbors in Rabbit Town. Uh, but I, I really, really loved it. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show.
2: Oh, Tom, that's great. And when you're home, give me a call.
1: And I will. Uh, Town, by the way, sort of a, a neighborhood in the in the center of St. John's. Mary Walsh's new short film, Dad in the Fridge Box, is available on uh, CBC Gym. And Mary Walsh's a TV show, or the TV show that Mary Walsh is a part of, The Mrs. Downstairs, is available on Bell 5.0. That is it for the show today and that is it for the show this week. I am so lucky to be uh, the lead singer of the best band in radio and podcasting. That's the producers here on Q. The producers of Q are Michaela Van Kooten, Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Sarah Melton, Vanessa Nigro, Mitch Pollack, Catherine Stockhausen, Caitlin Swan, and Jennifer Warren. Our digital team is Amelia Ekball, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashad. Our show's director is Matthew Murphy. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi, our senior producer is Lise Hossain and Anne McKeegan is the executive producer of Q. My name is Tom Power. I used to do the announcements in high school and now I get to host this show which is pretty cool. If you want to find me on Instagram I'm at TomJoePower. If you want to send me a note, best way to do it is Q at CBC.ca. All right, see you soon. Later on.